0: That would make for a very weird way to make a podcast, but I guess you're right. This email could have been a tweet. (laughs) This tweet could have been nothing.
1: And there we have it. (laughs) You got to wonder what percentage of meetings are completely pointless. So. (laughs) All? I want like I wouldn't say all. You remember like that brief period of time where I stopped doing actual work and became a director? I don't recall you ever starting
0: doing actual work. Boom! Nailed
1: it. Yeah, I walked right into that. You're you're not wrong. I had this nagging feeling because half of my day or more was booked up with meetings. I had this nagging feeling that I was just wasting my life in meetings. (laughs) And that grew and grew. And among other contributing factors was definitely part of the reason that I eventually quit. Yeah, I read something that almost made it into the lightning
0: round this week, uh, which was about a breakdown of people that purport to do agile and DevOps. (laughs) Like, say the words agile. Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Versus companies and organizations that actually do it, like properly.
1: Right. Because you can go through the motions pretty easily without actually changing the way you do anything. Right. And long story short, one of the biggest things that shows
0: that disparity off is how many meetings and how do we all agree that they're pointless meetings? And one of, the things, one of the things that they said, which might merit its own topic at some point, was that uh, Scrum Master is not supposed to be someone's job title.
1: Right. They're just someone who's going to facilitate the Scrum, but they have right. other responsibilities.
0: Right. And if that person doesn't have that as their situation, then they are um, unfairly motivated to have pointless meetings for absolutely no reason. And thus the, the process continues.
1: That did seem to be the point of so many meetings I had was someone, they literally have nothing else to do. So to make themselves seem important, they are going to get people in a room and talk at them.
0: (laughs) Or ask them for updates they already have the answers
1: to. Updates they could have easily either found themselves or asked for in some sort of report format that they're not going to read anyway.
0: Ned, so you spent all morning putting together that weekly status report. Can you
1: tell us all about that? Can you briefly summarize it? Can you summarize the summary? (laughs) And that's what so much of it comes down to. It's just, well, this is when we have our weekly blah, blah, blah meeting. And so we'll all go around the table and give our updates. And everyone will tune out except when they have to give their update. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it, we've solved it. We have solved organizations and management and meetings. I think we can Uh, all have a drink and go home. Perfect. Or go home and have a drink. Either (laughs) either order is fine. (laughs) Shall we? Surely. All right. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned and I'm definitely not a robot. I look upon small mammals with great affection, just like you. I boop, snoots, and give treats of questionable nutritional value after they successfully execute my commands. I am definitely not training an army of dachshunds to infiltrate naval bases and take over the U.S.'s nuclear capabilities, and I resent the assertion. With me is Chris, who is also here.
0: That'd be a very small, reasonably cute army
1: uh, I think the term you're looking for is fucking adorable, Army. And I'm going to call him the FAA, so no one suspects. <laughs> oh, the FAA's here to inspect the naval air carrier.
0: That makes sense. I mean, it's 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 a perfect cover.
1: Little, small collection of rat dogs. <laughs> See, no problems whatsoever. Yes. Collectively, they can type it like 70 words a minute. I and mean, the keys get like a
0: little all, wet. Like one, but one other dog than that. per
1: word, I'm assuming. So you're going to need at least 70 dogs. But you kind of break up the keyboard into sections, and each dog's responsible for a section. That makes sense. Okay. I'm glad that we're on the same page. <laughs> uh, kind of related? Let's talk about cybersecurity and how, you know, how to protect against those errant armies of dachshunds. So,
0: yeah, that's this is going to absolutely have to end up being another one of the pillars. What are we going to do about armies of dogs that sound very different than how they're spelled? You have completely frozen.
1: Well, well, you answer the question. You completely froze for like a solid 30 seconds. <laughs> I know. That doesn't get you off the hook. Answer the question. Welch's grape juice. Final answer.
0: That that might be literally the wrongest thing you could have said. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway. Oh, Where does a badge of pride? Let's talk about the National cybersecurity Strategy. Which, right off the top. Not an inspiring name. It's not a bad name. No, I've certainly heard
1: worse, but it's kind of vague, kind of bland. So, like a Microsoft name.
0: (laughs) As opposed to an AWS name that makes no sense at all (laughs) and is impossible to remember. Exactly. This is Project Athenos. But there were promises made a few years ago, and... Biden and company finally did the thing. Okay. It's not just anything, it's an internet type thing. Does he know what the internet is? He has an email address (laughs) (laughs) that he accesses with his AOL. (laughs) In stark contrast to a lot of countries around the world, the US has historically had a bit of, let's call it a lax. Attitude towards mandating crazy things like we should demand companies be held accountable for putting out poor products.
1: Mm.
0: Now, some of this was discussed last week in the lightning round by Ned, who talked about that part of the strategy, the one that's going to upset companies the most, Mm -hmm. which is the one that would require software providers to assume more responsibility for the products that they sell. Outrageous, right? Maybe sell things that aren't trash.
1: Ugh.
0: What a concept.
1: Unconscionable.
0: But the document that that came out of, the National Cybersecurity Strategy, talks about a whole bunch more things than just that one. So I figured, it's early. Everyone needs to get back to sleep.
1: Let's talk through the whole thing. Yay. So we're going to read it word for word? In the beginning. (laughs) Wait. Wrong book. Wrong strategy.
0: (laughs) So... There isn't, I don't think, very much controversy that something like this is needed? The U.S. government is pathetically behind the times around security, and by extension,
1: so is the private sector in America. Sorry, guys. Just is. I mean, it's pretty obvious by the number of ransomware attacks that I see in my news feed every day. And it's funny you mention ransomware, because we're going to get there. (laughs) I had a feeling.
0: So first things first, this strategy isn't binding. Mm. It's effectively the president or I guess really you should say the, the executive office because I'm sure he didn't sit down with a pen and pad and, and sketch this thing out. Just getting up and yelling at the sky that he has very important things to say. <laughs> Now, the difference here is that he actually is the president and he is in charge of the executive of the allegedly the most powerful country in the world. Mm-hmm. So him saying such things has some heft behind it, but still like not going to say that it's a ton. Mm-hmm. Nothing's going to change this week just because the strategy all of a sudden exists. But what is likely is that organizations and states, uh, other Parts of the government and hopefully the private sector will start to use what's in here as guidance to create actionable and binding policy resolutions, dare I say laws, over the years to come.
1: I mean, in theory, Congress could take some of this, you know, put it in one of the little subcommittees, come up with some bills and then maybe actually pass one or two. Unlikely, I know. More likely is that you know, Biden could issue some executive orders that will get immediately repealed by the next president. <laughs> and ignored entirely while they're enforced. Yeah, that too.
0: <laughs> so the strategy is not a huge document, and it doesn't take that long to read the whole thing. I think totally, total size start to beginning is like 38 pages. And it's broken down into five pillars. And those five pillars are, one, defend critical infrastructure. Two, disrupt and dismantle threat actors. Three, shape market forces to drive security and resilience. Four, invest in a resilient... Future? Yes, future. Mm -hmm. I don't even know why architecture came up. Five, forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals. So, again, the names aren't inspiring, but they all seem like a pretty good idea. Yeah. Like kind of basic... Let's go ahead and do that because it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Stands to reason the government wouldn't be doing it already. Boom again. Crushing it. Crushing it, Ned. Absolutely. So let's go through them relatively quickly one by one. Okay. So first one, and I think this is number one for a reason because it really sums up the goal of what we're trying to do here. And that is defend critical infrastructure. So, according to the strategy, in order to defend the, quote, critical services underpinning the lives of the Americans and the economy, a number of new regulations are in order. And this is what I mean by the strategy not actually being binding or actionable. It's not describing what these regulations are or putting them together in any way. It's just demanding that these regulations be created. Now the strategy does make it clear that the regulations should be in line with some of IT's favorite four-letter words, CISA and NIST. I'm not sure anybody ever actually pronounces it CISA, but for the purposes of this joke, we're just going to plow right on ahead.
1: Oh no, I'm now I'm thinking of the R&B artist Cisa, and that would be <laughs> fantastic if we could take all of her recommendations under consideration and make them actionable law.
0: And also, studies have shown that if you make things rhyme and back them up with a sick, sick beat, they're easier to remember. So win-win. Absolutely. No no arguments here. Now, the strategy highlights some of the critical infrastructure in question, and it's not all 100% government. So what we're talking about are pipelines, aviation, rail, water, and the electrical grid. And one of the things that is driving this insistence to protect them at a higher level than before is the increasingly used word smart. Mm. Smart, In particular,
1: the smart grid. Right. Smart usually means connected to the internet. Which usually means... Open to attack. There we are. Okay.
0: (laughs) So when you talk about those, obviously, we're talking about huge swaths of the economy. And like I said, it's not all government. So one of the things that the strategy asks for is for the private companies that work in those spaces to get on board as well. And unfortunately, from the beginning of the internet till now, we've got ample evidence that those private functioned companies aren't going to secure themselves. Mm. Right. So, one interesting thing that they throw in here that was like, I really wish they had broken down a little bit more. They want regulations that make it so private actors and private companies don't underspend on cybersecurity as part of their economic competitive strategy. So, the old, the old problem of IT and security being considered a cost vector – Versus a competitive advantage.
1: I mean, More importantly, the fact that any decision to spend on cybersecurity is balanced against the cost of not implementing it.
0: Right. So like I said, they were super vague about this. I think it's a good idea. Super curious to see how we're going to
1: do that and how that one turns out. Would you really have... Uh, the problem that you have here is if you create specific regulations, you set a floor, a minimum on the security that you're in expecting any given company to put into place. Right. And they will do that bare minimum, but they're not going to go above and beyond. If you want companies to go above and beyond, you need to provide some sort of economic incentive or reason for them to go above and beyond the absolute minimum of security. I don't – I feel like that's not something you can easily do with regulations and rules. It's something that you need to find uh, more of a carrot and less of a stick, though a little bit of both is probably good.
0: Right. Final point they make in this particular pillar. The modernization and increased cooperation of federal organizations when responding to a – and this is capital letters, cybersecurity incident. So, there is such a thing as a national cybersecurity incident response plan. The strategy makes it clear it is insufficient. Mm. Okay. And the fact that this might not be the best response, especially when you're talking about something of this scale, makes sense. When you have a large nation-state-sized attack on critical infrastructure, it stands to reason that a nation-state-sized response would be warranted. One of the big things there you're going to need is instant cooperation, sharing of data, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All stuff that is a big problem right now. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, some would say concerning, is that the document wants these regulations to take lessons from, quote, the success of the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, which also gives you, I think... A bit of a hint on how the strategy wants to approach
1: cybersecurity incidents going forward. Hand it over to the Department of Homeland Security? Nuke them from orbit. Ah, okay.
0: Which leads directly into the second pillar, which is disrupt and dismantle threat actors. So we didn't have to wait all that long for that terrorism thing hint to be paid off, huh? No. Nation-state threat all-stars such as China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea are explicitly called out as malicious actors with, drumroll please, ransomware being a major part of their adversarial actions. Yay. These are all words in the strategy. All right. And what this section is describing is definitely a change in strategy towards proactive maximization, the disruption to these actors' ability to operate. So some of these things already existed, things like taking down botnets, trying to freeze funds in banking accounts, making it so it's impossible for them to pull the money they get out of a ransomware attack out of the country has been done in the past, but somewhat defensively. After the fact, mm-hmm. responsively, I guess, is maybe the better way to put it. Right. The strategy
1: advocates a quote strategic approach of defending forward. <laughs> that is some that is some epic wordsmithing there. You like that? That's a, defending forward, so attacking. Oh no, no, right. no, no! Right, which is a different word because we we're, already have that word. We're defending forward. We're not attacking. Wow. Just I just want to sit on that for a moment. <laughs>
0: Okay. they basically want to step forward and stop bad actors before those bad actors have an opportunity to inflict harm. Now this is a bold change, but it's one that a lot of
1: security analysts have actually been talking about and
0: calling for for
1: years. I mean it does raise the raise the specter of if we're perceived as attacking these other, uh, state actors, then they can feel more justified in responding with elevated attacks from their side. Kind of like a you started it first pointing fingers type of right. situation. Right. You're on my side of the line. Right. Right.
0: But and, and especially when you're talking about these countries that have such a delicate relationship in international politics in the first place, it's going to be interesting to see what goes on here.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But in terms of how they want to do it, the strategy again, asks for faster communications and public slash private collaboration. It wants to lean harder on the financial world, not just in the United States, and we'll get to that in another pillar, to stop the flow of money, to track where it's going, and to make sure that the people that are doing These types of things, these malicious actors, literally just cannot get the money they're demanding. They're also looking for international ways to try to identify the true owners of U.S.-based servers and infrastructure. Mm. Now, it doesn't flat out say we want to start proactively blowing up North Korean-based hacking groups, but, you know, if we're defending forward, it doesn't really
1: rule that out either. (laughs) That's right. I mean, to really... Get into our critical infrastructure, they have to establish some kind of beachhead on the US side of the line. So, right. we're... and a
0: lot of times what happens is they go through, you know, five or six different shell companies to disguise who's actually doing it. Right. So, what kind of tools can we put together or, or regulate or whatever to make unpacking that type of hiding of who's actually doing it a little bit easier? Ryan,
1: right. you're talking about not just enlisting cybersecurity professionals, but finance professionals, yes. forensi- forensic accountants, people who can dig into the, the, the morass of business agreements and contracts and all of that to divine who's actually behind that you know, six-shell corporation set up. Right. And a lot of the justifications, because they
0: revolve around ransomware, can justifiably say the money's the most important part. They define ransomware as a borderless challenge that represents a, quote, threat to national security, public safety, and economic prosperity, which, sure. Yeah. Ransomware has also been going down over the past two years, but it's definitely a thing that everybody's heard about. So the cynical take here in terms of why is framed this way, the government can then point to any cybercrime they want to and just be like, that's just like ransomware, sort of, and then move right on to red-teaming Barbados or whatever.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. They know what they did. Absolutely. They know, Ned.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: They know. So the next one is shaping market forces to drive security and resilience. And this is the one that you talked about in more depth last week. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. Basically, what it says is that the quote, stewards of our data must be held accountable for that data's security. Hmm. That means every aspect of the internet, really, that means accounts, email accounts, whatever you want to call it. That means your devices, That means fly-by-night cloud services and SaaS companies. One would have loved to see something in here about legislating away the ability for crap companies to store infinite amounts of data about us all forever, (laughs) thus removing the incentive for bad actors to attack these crap companies in the first place. But I know,
1: (sighs) I know, someone has to think of the advertisers. I don't think you said that with enough... uh... Suzanne Summers inflection, (laughs) but I think I'll let it fly. I appreciate that. All right.
0: Now, the next one is invest in a resilient future. And this part of the document especially gets a little repetitive. And I am guessing that this pillar is only even in here because saying your document has five pillars sounds a lot cooler than it's only got four. All right. It's a bigger number, Ned.
1: I like – I generally like bigger numbers. See? Yeah. See?
0: So what is this pillar asking for? (laughs) Public-private cooperation, investments in R&D and security, and the national will to, quote, out-innovate our overseas competitors – Okay, so this section actually does make a few specific requests, which is in as much as this document makes any specific requests. These are logical but not earth shattering changes. Mm -hmm. Things like fixing well known BGP vulnerabilities, making DNS requests, not plain text. And finally, implementing IPv6,
1: which should have been done literally a decade ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, all of these things are possible right now. Correct. Uh, the BGP vulnerability thing in particular is there have been a bunch of different potential standards for it. But the problem you have is that BGP on the public Internet relies on the cooperation of hundreds of different organizations and not all of them want to implement secure BGP in the same way or at all. Right, which does make things more difficult. It does, but But it's okay. We have a strategy now. We at least have a set of recommendations and maybe the force of the US government behind it for for whatever that's worth. So interestingly, another more specific
0: request made by the strategy is the creation of a digital identity ecosystem, Hmm. which resembles something else we talked about. Oh my goodness. One way to do this would have been the decentralized identifier W3C standard. More on that way back in September of last year, Ned did a breakdown episode 26 Listen your heart out. I am just impressed you looked it up. (laughs) (laughs) That was the hardest work I did on this whole thing. What are you talking about? Wait, what? I didn't say that out loud. Mm. But one thing that's missing from this list of obvious fixes that is annoying to me, why didn't they put anything in here about the fact that email is a nightmare that's been a problem for 25 years and we've never made any significant efforts to improve it? There's DMARC.
1: That's not better. That's a bolt on. Again, I think you have the same general problem with SMTP and email that you have with BGP, in that there's hundreds, but this time thousands of providers, all of whom may not want to make the same change to their protocol. Right. Because they're all
0: breaking it in a different, unique, and beautiful way.
1: As you've pointed out,
0: email is actually. Much like become, JavaScript.
1: Right. Email has become highly centralized for a lot of people. Uh, I don't have any numbers in front of me, but I got to imagine that between Google and Microsoft, that's got to be like the bulk of email. So between the two of them and maybe one or two other players, they could force some changes in the ecosystem as a whole. But what's the incentive for them to do it when they can just use their internally developed tools instead that are not open source?
0: So something else that the strategy lays out plainly as something we, as a country, are going to have to prepare for is quantum. Of solace? <laughs> no one's ready for that. Okay. On this point, the strategy is insistent, hmm. even more than clear. And what do they think we're going to do? need to do to prepare for a post-quantum future? Hmm. Invest in R&D and public-private cooperation. <laughs> Shocking. I am going to find whoever typed this and steal the Control-C from their keyboard. <laughs> now, one thing that's interesting about this, the strategy also lays out pretty plainly that all of this is going to require a lot of cybersecurity professionals.
1: Yeah. And thus,
0: they want to make sure that things coming up... Are available to quote recruit and train the next generation of cybersecurity professionals. Now, the strategy does list out a lot of already existing government programs that, if people are curious about this, might be worth investigating. Called out by name are just a few, but here they are National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, the Cyber Corps, Cyber Education Training and Assistance Program and workforce development programs and apprenticeships at the National Science Foundation and other registered agencies. Hmm. So, yeah, I had only heard of um, – it's not important. I hadn't heard of all of these.
1: Or any of them.
0: <laughs> so, ironically, maybe they should invest in some advertising.
1: Yeah, Try to get the word out there a little bit, especially as we're seeing a downturn and layoffs in employment. Knowing that this is coming down the pike, it gives people an opportunity to skill up or reskill for that trade. And also, we have other sectors that are going to eventually shed their workforce, you know, as stuff like coal (laughs) becomes less (laughs) and less viable. Hey, maybe some of those people working in the coal industry could learn to be cybersecurity people. Why not? And then the final.
0: Countdown? What? The final. What? What? Okay. Forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals. Last pillar, I promise. Mm. The strategy wants to continue to build partnerships that will encourage, quote, responsible state behavior in cyberspace. Now, these types of partnerships already exist. So this is, again, more of an expansion of existing ideas. But they do get a little feisty about some of the other more proactive things we've discussed, including recognizing, quote, the need to work with partners to thwart the dark vision for the future of the Internet that the PRC and other autocratic governments promote. Ooh, that's a line. (laughs) Wow. The dark vision, which I ass- is feels a little melodramatic for a governmental position paper, a wee bit, yeah. But uh, then again, this was on page 29, and I'm assuming that even chat GPT gets a little punchy when we get to the 20,000 word mark. That's libel and slander, sir. <laughs> so, I mean. The strategy also wants to build further support, more than just the economics and the information sharing. It also asks for the ability to help allies who are Mm -hmm. under attack. One would think of Ukraine. For example, or any other smaller company that is getting completely demolished by cybersecurity attacks that would be within these partnerships. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, All of this with the basic goal of building partnerships that can be used to benefit those who play by the rules and team up against those who don't.
1: That does sound like a generally good idea. Right. Now, one of the things that is highlighted in the document,
0: like I said, there already are some of these partnerships, but there are like, hmm... 3,000 of them? (laughs) And a lot of them are like very small and very focused. So you'll have three countries that have an agreement about sharing information about ransomware. Mm. But if you're talking about all the good guys working together, multiply that by the, I don't know, let's make up a number, 100 good countries, good countries. Right. You can see how very quickly it becomes difficult to know how to communicate. What if you have an issue with that three country agreement, but there's a fourth country. Now you have to have a whole new agreement? Like, what's the what's the plan? And I think that's what they're going for, is something a little more overarching, simplifying the ability to communicate, to share ideas, and most importantly, like I said, help thwart dark visions. Thwart so dark visions. That's the short, short version of this 38 page paper.
1: Okay. So what do we think? I mean, everything that you've talked about thus far sounds like a good sounds like a good idea. Good recommendations. The biggest problem is implementing any of it, both <laughs> both domestically and internationally. Right. We don't yeah, have and- uh, we don't have a Congress, a lawmaking group of people who can really agree on anything at the moment. And so to try to get through any kind of legislation that is in any way contentious or even existent is going to be a pretty big hurdle to get over. Yeah, I mean, we can't even fix daylight savings time. This is an easy one. Just stop doing it. Should have been an easy one. There was a Uh, bill and it passed. Uh, Passed the House, maybe. No. Or passed the the Senate. Senate. It hasn't made it to the House. For reasons. Yeah.
0: So one thing that I do wish they had put in here is highlighting the need for increased attention on educating the population as a whole about Mm. just cybersecurity topics and best practices. We have known for years that it is humans that make up the biggest risk to any system security. Mm Mm-hmm. According to a pretty famous study from 2018, 95% of cyber incidents were, quote, (laughs) human-enabled. And while things have gotten better over the past five years, how much better are we talking about, really? Mm -hmm. We don't need to put a number on it, but just think about it. (laughs) Remember just last week when we talked about what took down LastPass? Wasn't there questionable encryption or some deeply sophisticated advanced persistent threat? Mm -hmm. It was an engineer who had root access who was running an unpatched Plex server on a desktop computer. So
1: many things wrong with that sentence. Yep. Yeah, I kind of liken it to the era, the earlier era of automobiles when we had started introducing safety features to protect people. But as part of those safety features, there had to be a massive push in education around using or adhering to those safety features. Right. So seatbelts, for example. We can put seatbelts in cars. We can create an annoying ding sound that if you don't buckle, it will continue doing. But at a certain point, you need to educate the person enough to know why they should put on the seatbelt in the first place. Right. And very famously, back then, when they were doing that,
0: one of the people that they enlisted was one of the most uh, well-known movie stars of the time, James Dean, who then, a week or so later,
1: very tragically died because he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. Well, the world has a distinct sense of irony, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it did dramatically show the, uh, the impact of not following your own advice. So that's, I mean, sad, but I'm not suggesting that we uh, unintentionally kill an educator uh, in service of increasing cybersecurity, but you know, some kind of educational program would probably be a good idea, some sort of PSAs, a push for, for better personal cybersecurity, be a good idea. I agree. So lightning round, lightning round. We are not going to cover Silicon Valley Bank. Last week was a rough one for venture capitalists, startups, and investment bankers, as we saw the thoroughly stunning collapse of what seemed like a permanent institution in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley Bank, better known as SVB, suffered a bank run due to poor messaging and perceived insolvency on the part of its depositors. In a panic, customers of the bank, primarily focused on startups and tech firms, rushed to withdraw their money for fear they would be left holding an empty sack of promises, draining the bank's reserves completely to the tune of $42 billion. The bank could not meet remaining requests, so the FDIC took over the bank and declared it insolvent. This is generally considered a bad thing. This only heightened the panic among remaining depositors who were worried they wouldn't be able to make payroll and pay operational bills in the coming weeks. Late Sunday night, the FDIC announced that they would make depositors whole with access to their funds on Monday in their full amounts. That's basically where we are now. These are all just the facts on the ground that have been reported well by other sources. Neither I nor Chris are remotely qualified to comment or analyze what went down, and unlike half of Twitter at the moment, we won't pretend to be. If you want an excellent breakdown, check out the linked video from Patrick Boyle, and stay tuned, because this story is still emerging, and many of the early details, hot takes, and quote-unquote facts are likely to be wrong.
0: United Kingdom's online safety bill, set to completely destroy security and privacy online.
1: Yay!
0: Anyone with even a small amount of privacy background or interest knows that the UK kind of loves prying into the lives of their citizens. London, famously, is the only city outside of China when it comes to CCTV cameras per capita top 10. Now, to put a feather in there, won't someone think of the children cap? The UK is once again attempting to destroy the internet security this coming parliamentary season so they can spy on people basically at will. The idea of this bill would require companies to break end to end encryption and hand over messages from individuals to the government when asked. This, of course, is a terrible idea and would result in a lot of security problems and basically the end of privacy in a reliable fashion online. Gross. The bill is so bad that even Facebook is on the right side of the issue, saying that they would rather remove WhatsApp from the UK market completely rather than remove end-to-end encryption. How in the world is the UK missing that particular bellwether? It is time to seriously reevaluate your priorities and actions when you've done something so stupid that even
1: Facebook appears to be in the right. (laughs) (sighs) Advertising company Google killed Reader 10 years ago. Never forgive, never forget. It was a decade ago that advertising company Google formally announced they were discontinuing Reader, but it still feels like it was yesterday. For those who never had the pleasure of using Reader, it was essentially an RSS feed aggregator that ran in your browser. RSS is probably best known as that weird protocol podcasts use, like this one, but it's really just a way to publish content to subscribers in a standard format from an unchanging URL. As someone who ingests a lot of news, being able to view and control the aggregation of sites is awesome. For sites that still support RSS, I tip my hat to you. Everyone else, you suck. Regarding Reader, (laughs) I want to make two things very clear. Number one, Google Reader was not the greatest application ever. No one is claiming that. Advertising company Google is notoriously bad at UI and design, and Reader was no exception. Number two, free replacements absolutely exist. I've been happily using Feedly for the last seven or eight years. The death of Reader is about something bigger. It was the beginning of advertising company Google becoming advertising company Google, ruthlessly killing off apps. A practice I would argue has sowed distrust with users and stunted innovation at advertising company Google to the degree that it was ever there. And also, it signaled to news aggregators like Facebook and advertising company Google itself that they should focus on curating the feed for you, injecting ads, and monetizing your eyeballs. (sighs) In memoriam, Google reader, you weren't the best. You weren't even that good. But you represented a better possible internet, and I lament your early demise every day. Facebook
0: developing a mastodon-like social network to take on Twitter. Finally smelling blood in the water many, many, many months late, Facebook is apparently working hard on a skunkworks project that will allegedly be a direct competitor to Twitter. Twitter, which everyone hates, is on what we can all see is a probably unavoidable death spiral. Facebook, which everyone hates, is finally taking notice. The Instagram team appears to be working on a project codenamed P92 that would conceivably be a Mastodon that people have actually heard of. It is designed to be decentralized, but don't worry, don't worry, Mm. you would still use your Instagram account to log on, so Zuck will still be able to spy on you with his usual lack of care for your privacy or protecting your data. Still. It is likely that only a company with the user base of a Facebook will create the network effects that are clearly required for a social media project to work. To do a quick comparison, Mastodon and the Fediverse have approximately 2.6 million users. That's users total. Mm-hmm. Facebook has 2 billion active users worldwide. <laughs> These are two different numbers. Slightly. And the P92 project would allegedly take advantage of ActivityPub, which is what powers the Fediverse. So Facebook, while still unavoidably awful, might have the numbers sway to make a decentralized tool a reality. You know, eh, ba- eh. baby steps. Baby steps.
1: You know, I wrote a whole lightning round article that was the same article, but taking the opposing position. And then I read yours and deleted it. <laughs> That'd be pretty funny if we had them
0: side-by-side and we just let it go without comment. Oh, they
1: were side-by-side. I just didn't read yours first. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) GitHub will require 2FA on all accounts by year-end. Let's hope this is the beginning of a trend. That rhymed. Starting on March 13th, GitHub is embarking on a campaign of getting every user enrolled in two-factor authentication for their login. Rather than trying to do it all at once, they are selecting small groups of developer accounts to target, sending them emails, and displaying a banner notification when the user logs in. Targeted accounts will have 45 days to enroll before being forced to enable 2FA on their next login. GitHub supports TOTP, security keys, and SMS-based factors. While they recommend using TOTP or security keys over SMS, they don't put SMS behind a paywall unlike garbage Twitter. You can also set up multiple second factors and select which is your preferred method and which is your fallback method. Additionally, GitHub is testing the use of pass keys for integration later this year. Considering the staggering amount of important code that lives on GitHub, I'm surprised it took them this long to roll out the 2FA requirements. Other sites should take notice and enable similar policies, helping make our web a little bit safer.
0: After a six-year absence, Go appears to be a top 10 language again. Hmm. Yay? Maybe. Sure. When building a software, the first thing a software builder has to do is pick the language to software in. Hmm. And if you're not in tech, it can frankly be a shocking, bewildering thing to learn how many languages there actually are out there. Spoiler alert, it's a lot. TIOBE, the software quality company, regularly releases a listing of the languages that are the most popular. Now, this is not in terms of quality or power. It is a pure listing based on the number of lines of code produced on publicly available data. Number one with a bullet is of course, Python. Number two is C, probably because of (laughs) stubbornness. Number three is Java, because why not be self-destructive? And then C++ rounds out the top four. Hmm. These are the titans of the software industry, and they barely ever change their rankings. The rest of them can get a little interesting. And this month, the Google language Go snuck back into the top 10, literally at number 10, hmm. but hey, it counts. Go has been around for a while but it hasn't made the top 10 of this list for the past six years. It barely edged out assembly for this March iteration. Time will tell if it sticks around. It would be good if it did. That underdog advertising company, Google, it'd be keen if they could get a win.
1: Boy, they really need it, don't they? Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can sit, 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 stay. Good listener. Give yourself a treat from the jar on the counter. No, the other one. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at ned thirteen thirteen and hayner eighty respectively, or follow the show at chaos underscore lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com, as is the sign-up for our newsletter, which you could get every week in your mailbox? Your email box, that is. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. I stepped out of the frame. I guess I can say whatever I want. Right You're a stinky poophead and I don't like you. Ha-ha. You don't listen to the podcast anyway. Mo You left me. What was the question? What is your favorite type of fruit juice? Welch's. Wrong answer. Grape. <laughs>